Hey all you punk rockers out there and welcome to another episode of Let's Talk Punk Rock. On today's episode we're going to be sailing on with that attitude but don't bother me before the big takeover. That's right, on today's episode we're talking the bad brains. So as I said before, we're hitting one of my personal favorites and a hugely influential band in the hardcore scene, the Bad Brains. But these guys are one of those amazingly talented bands that didn't have to stay in one genre. They were capable of pulling off crazy high-energy hardcore music, reggae, and metal all in the same show. That's right, all in the same show. You can easily find footage of these guys playing CBGBs, and the switch between genres is insane. Check it out. Now, a lot of today's episode is going to be split between talking about the band as a whole and talking about the main lead singer, H.R. H.R., originally meaning hunting rod, presumably for the staff that he would walk around with, though I found some theory that it was more for his way with the ladies. I'll leave that for you to decide. There's just so much information on H.R. out there and crazy stories surrounding this guy if you don't believe me, I highly recommend watching the documentary Finding Joseph I or reading the book of the same name. So to get started, H.R., born Paul Hudson, was born in Liverpool in 1956. He moves to Jamaica when he's three, where his mother was originally from. His dad was from Alabama and served in the Air Force. As with most military kids, there was a lot of moving around. They were living in places like Texas, Alabama, New York, and eventually settled down in D.C. Although H.R. and his brother Earl Hudson had played in a pseudo band as younger kids, H.R. on ukulele, Earl on some cardboard drums with a snare, and two neighbor kids with their guitars, he found himself more on the athletic side of things growing up. He was described as very athletic, participating in pole vaulting, track, swimming, and briefly football until a bad tackle turned him off of the game. All of these athletics would come to play a major role in just one of the things that would later define what the Bad Brains brought to the table as a serious band worth seeing. He'd been described as an awkward child, but music really helped him come out of his shell more and stop avoiding people. Now that that bit of background of the singer and his brother Earl, drummer of the Bad Brains, is out of the way, let's get into the band's history itself. Now the Bad Brains didn't get their start the way most punk bands do. Of all things, these guys were already in a band playing jazz fusion music in 1976. That's right, jazz fusion helped give birth to one of the most iconic hardcore groups of punk rock history. They were called Mind Power. Pretty awesome transition of band names to go from Mind Power to Bad Brains, if you ask me. At the time of Mind Power, HR and his brother Earl were living in an apartment and so did not have a good place to practice. They found their practice space in their friend Alvarez Tolson's basement whenever his mother would go out. They would practice at this home until HR's family moved into a house. They eventually started charging 50 cents to people for parties they would play at. Mind Power would never really take off, though. One good thing that came from this band was the jazz playing skill that these guys would develop and then use to have more solos and jazzy riffs in their hardcore playing. Now one thing that many will say is that there really wasn't any punk scene in D.C. around the mid-70s. That's not to say that there weren't any punk rockers around, but it wasn't anything like it would become. And for the Bad Brains, this punk scene would be introduced to them by a friend of theirs. 
Sid McRae had been friends with HR and the others before the Bad Brains formed. One day, he came to visit Daryl Jennifer, the bass player of the Bad Brains, covered in his safety pins and bringing his punk albums. Different bands are cited for what he played for them, but the common ones that come up are the Ramones, the Sex Pistols, and the Dead Boys. In fact, the band's name, Bad Brains, comes from the Ramones song, Bad Brain. They began playing punk music with Sid McRae on vocals while HR played guitar. Sid McRae eventually stepped out of the band before they did their first recording so that HR could step up as singer. He said that it wasn't a competition, but that he recognized HR was a better singer and more theatrical. Another issue came with him not feeling the reggae influences that HR had. A lot of this reggae influence with the band would come from what sounds like a nearly religious experience while seeing a Bob Marley concert at the Capitol Center. Along with the reggae influences, the entire band embraced what they called PMA, or Positive Mental Attitude, which supposedly came about from HR reading the book Think and Grow Rich by Napoleon Hill. This is one of the first self-help books originally published in 1937. Thanks to being a super high-energy punk group in D.C., they quickly gained a strong following. Getting gigs was still not particularly easy for the band. The song Banned in D.C. is not necessarily true in the sense that they were banned, but it was difficult to get shows after venues would talk with one another. Have a listen. basically saying you can kick us out of your club but we don't care because there's other cities to play one example of why they were being banned from these venues comes from where they were playing a show in the upstairs of a building that had a nicer restaurant below the kids watching the show started a pogo which is a sort of dance where you jump up and down and it caused a whole bunch of noise and the chandeliers to rock back and forth below upsetting the people eating their dinner now, where it seemed the Bad Brains might get their first big break came along after they opened for The Damned in D.C. This show is at a place called The Bayou. After the show, the Bad Brains would end up heading to the U.K. to meet up with The Damned. Unfortunately for the band, things didn't work out the way they had hoped. They headed to New York first on their way. This was originally supposed to be a short stopping point for them. Earl had to sell his drums to make the money for tickets to fly over to the U.K., the real trouble came when they arrived in the UK, though. As the band was going through customs, an empty vial was found in one of their bags. Nobody is sure what the vial held originally, but it's suspected to have been cocaine. Either way, that's what the customs agents took it as, and the band was sent back to the US. So now, this band is back in New York with no drums, and to make it worse, their guitars had been confiscated as stolen. They are now a band with no equipment and no money. Their time in New York was far from easy. They were homeless most of the time. They spent a lot of nights sleeping on park benches and selling weed to be able to afford food. At times, they would crash at other bands' places like The Mad or The Stimulators. Oftentimes, they'd be borrowing the equipment from these bands to play their own shows. 
Eventually, they found themselves playing at the now-famous club CBGB's. They would play this place almost every night they could. If you're looking to see the high energy these guys brought to the stage, you should search for a recording of one of their CBGB shows. Even watching this kind of performance in video will get your energy going, so I can only imagine what it must have been like to experience it live. One story I found about these shows comes from an old reggae term, mash it up, which HR would say at these performances. When he'd say this, the crowd would go crazy and just start tearing things up. I found a nice theory by Ian Mackay about this, where he thought maybe with HR's Jamaican accent it sounded more like mosh it up, and that's what caused these fans to go ballistic. It was like a mosh pit. But there's no real evidence for this. Finally, the band gets a break when this guy Jimmy Quid of The Dots helped them get into a recording studio. Here, they would record their first single, Pay to Come. making this single by using some of Earl Hudson's tax return money. Like the true punk rockers that they were, they made their own sleeves for these singles. They would then take these singles and sell them at their shows. The only had about 500 of these original singles made, so if you get your hands on one of those, keep it close. The quality is astounding for a first single, and Earl Hudson mentions them having an unwritten rule of giving 110%. These guys were not just screwing around. Eventually, they find their first manager, Mo Sussman, working at a restaurant called Max's Kansas City. I'm not really sure how they found this guy, but they did, and he had some potential connections for them with bigger labels like EMI. The first meeting starts out like you'd expect. HR comes in full force and plops himself down across from this guy, basically telling him that he's going to be their manager. Mo sets them up with a place to live and some new equipment, which is pretty huge considering how they were getting on before. He believes these guys are ready to record an album, but the band wants to work on it some more. They don't think they're ready just yet. Mo was a real make money now kind of guy, which is already not a great fit for HR. He wanted them to clean up their act and play the game more. He also wanted them to wear certain outfits and really fit this gimmick. HR was not having any of it. The band just wanted to make good music. They wanted to do it their way, and they didn't want to bother with any gimmicks. The band later meets a guy named Neil Cooper at CBGB's. This guy will help them record their first full album. This album would be Bad Brains. It was originally only released on cassette by Reach Out International Records. This is the album you're probably familiar with seeing. It has the Capitol building being struck by lightning. Daryl Jennifer has said that this album was a pain in the ass to make, emotionally and physically difficult. Up to the point of the first Bad Brains album, the band has had a few managers. They eventually find a solid manager named Anthony County. County was a film student who knew little to nothing about managing a band. Anthony County goes to see this band perform and is totally blown away by them. Again, check out some old footage and you'll see why. He finds his way backstage and lets them know how amazed he is by their performance. The next day, he wakes up to someone buzzing his apartment to let them in. Unbelievably, it's the Bad Brains. 
He lets them upstairs and they tell him that they need a manager and that he has to do it. At first, he protests, saying that he's a film student and they should get someone else, but they insist that it has to be him. So, despite having no experience managing a band, he goes on tour with these guys. The band blows people away wherever they end up playing on this tour. There are some issues further south with racism, as you would expect in the 80s. This unfortunately would occasionally result in the plug being pulled on some of their shows. The tour also had another dark side bringing trouble on the band. There were some major issues with homophobia from the Bad Brains. They credit this today as being overzealous about Rasta as young people often are when they first get into something. They took the Bible too headstrong and literally, but have since admitted these thoughts were wrong. Another reason given for the band's homophobia came from older gay men allegedly taking advantage of young teens at their shows in New York. This really freaked them out, as you might expect it would anyone. The reasons the band's homophobia came to light really showed in two instances. One, from a fanzine interview HR did with Flipside Magazine, where he said some pretty negative things about homosexuals. The interview was published, and people became angry to the point of fans egging the van and handing out flyers at the shows about their homophobia. An even more messed up moment came from when they were in Austin playing with the Big Boys, the Big Boy's lead singer, Biscuit, was gay, which bothered HR a lot. As the story goes, Biscuit got the band some weed, expecting them to pay him back later. Instead of being paid back, he was left with a pile of ashes and a long note explaining to him why he would burn in hell. Homophobia wasn't the only thing hurting the band's chances at success. Rasta was beginning to become something that was getting in the way. This is especially true for frontman HR. Have you ever had a friend who acts one way around one group of friends, but then totally different around another? This is how HR was starting to be. He would be one way around the punkers, and then completely flip to a different way around his Rasta friends. He was diving heavily into Rasta and truly believed that revolution was on its way. On top of that, Ronald Reagan was clearly the devil in his eyes. What can you expect when the man's initials each have six letters? 666, the mark of the beast. By the end of the tour, HR had really been turned off of punk rock, and in an interview he announced that the Bad Brains would be disbanding in 1982 and come back as a new group called Zion Train. They would only do reggae music. There was an issue here, though. HR had failed to talk to anyone else in the band about this, and they were not all on board. The following year, in 1983, the Bad Brains released their next album, Rock for Light. This is their first real professional album. It is recorded by none other than Rick Okasik of The Cars. Despite HR's odd antics, such as recording most of his vocals turned around, facing away from everyone in the studio, the album catches the eye of Elektra Records. Tom Zatout of Elektra likes the way the Bad Brains sound and wants to sign them. This is their first real chance at hitting it big, but the deal doesn't work out the way they hope. HR starts things off by introducing Zatout as Satan. During the meeting, HR says something along the lines of, Do you know what happens to people who mess with Rasta? In an intimidating tone. Zatout feels threatened, and the deal falls through. It's possible that HR just had a fear of being exploited, but it's not really clear what's going through his mind at this point. After the incident with Electra Records, the band went on their first hiatus. HR left New York and headed back to D.C. 
The rest of the band stayed in New York, but after a while, HR's brother Earl also came back to D.C. These hiatuses would become almost regular for the band and were a way for them to recharge their batteries. While living in D.C., HR was staying in a community-type house. This place would be known as the Dread House. HR's room was small with little in it. Here, HR would start his own label with a woman named Julie Bird. Their label would be called Olive Tree, and the Dread House soon became the Olive Tree House. Olive Tree is never really that large of a success. In 1985, the Bad Brains reunite after their brief hiatus. A record producer by the name of Ron St. Germain got a hold of a Bad Brains cassette and wants to work with the band. He really did some work to help these guys out. He took them out to a farm to help them get away and do some recording. When their drums weren't working out, he got them new drums. But they only had a few days to record. To add trouble to this, Earl and HR had recently been pulled over and a bag of weed was under the seat of the car. They were both charged. HR informs St. Germain that he's going to have to serve a few months at Lorton Reformatory. St. Germain has HR record two takes of every song before he goes. While in Lorton Reformatory, HR got a job sweeping floors in the cafeteria, which gave him access to a payphone. Here, he would call and record the vocals for their song, Sacred Love. That's right, the vocals for Sacred Love were recorded over the phone while HR was doing time on cannabis charges. This would be put on their album, Eye Against Eye, which was released in 1986. Listen and see if you can tell it was recorded over the phone. That's pretty phenomenal recording. In 1987, the band has another shot at a big record deal. Island Records wants to sign them. This deal again falls through due to the erratic behavior of HR. The way the story goes, they are all there with the contracts out to go over. HR excuses himself to use the restroom. Instead of going to the restroom, though, he takes off down the street and bails on the deal. Now, Island was the record label that really made Bob Marley a household name. If you recall, Bob Marley was a huge influence for this band, especially HR. There are some theories that HR felt Island had wronged Bob Marley in some way or hurt reggae music. It's possible that this was another case of him wanting full control and making it all about the music instead of money. If they had gotten this deal, it's likely they would have gone on tour with U2 after their release of Joshua Tree. Although they did not get to be the openers for the Joshua Tree tour, the band did still go on tour in 1987 to promote Eye Against Eye. At the end of this tour, though, HR and Earl Hudson quit the band again. In 1988, a new singer comes in to replace HR on tour. This new singer is Taj Singleton. Replacing Earl Hudson is Mackie Jason, the original drummer of the Cro-Mags. In the same year, the Bad Brains sign with Caroline Records and record the Quickness album with Taj on vocals. I'm not sure what the issue is exactly here, but Taj is not fitting well with the band. HR comes back and writes new lyrics and re-records over what Taj Singleton had done. This effectively removes him from the album. Earl Hudson also rejoins the band at this point for the Quickness tour. 
The tour is not without its complications. HR occasionally refuses to sing at scheduled shows, and at one point, a fight breaks out on the bus between HR and bassist Daryl Jennifer. HR gets off the bus and starts walking on his own down the road. Daryl follows behind, trying to calm him down, and they eventually make it to the show. In response to all this, Daryl cuts his dreads off. This is a huge statement against HR. HR and Earl Hudson leave the band again after this tour, and HR is replaced by Faith No More's Chuck Mosley. Shortly after this, the Bad Brains break up again entirely. This breakup lasts until around 1991, when Israel Joseph I receives a call at his mother's house. The call is from Daryl Jennifer, asking him to audition for the Bad Brains. He says he got his number from some girl. Epic Records signs the Bad Brains in 1993, and the band records their album Rise, with Israel Joseph I on vocals and Mackie Jason on drums again. The album does not go well, and the band is dropped by Epic. Not all is lost here, as the band then gets signed to Madonna's label, Maverick, in 1995. They record the album God of Love, with Rick Ocasek producing again. With this, they go on tour that same year with the Beastie Boys for their Ill Communication Tour. The tour seems to follow the trend that the band has had so far. HR continues to create trouble with his aggressive and unpredictable attitude. For one of the first shows on the tour, HR refuses to come out of the back of the tour bus. When he does, he backhands his brother Earl and puts the road manager in the hospital. Luckily, Tony County, the road manager, doesn't press charges. But unfortunately, the police are still called and HR is found to have weed on him. He is then arrested and deported, putting an end to that piece of the tour. After this trouble, HR comes back and apologizes for his actions with County, and the Bad Brains are back on a U.S. tour. This time, they're touring with a then-little-known band, The Deftones. As if bad touring luck is predestined for these guys, this one will end in trouble as well. HR is back to his odd behavior, handcuffing himself to a girl for most of the tour. The thing that caused the real trouble for the Bad Brains, though, comes from when they play a place called The Bottleneck in Lawrence, Kansas. HR takes one of those heavy mic stands and cracks it over a guy's skull and knocks him out. Now, I found a few stories of what prompted that action that night, and it seems nobody is really certain. Not even HR. I've heard that the guy was spitting on HR, and he lost it. I've heard that HR saw the guy point a gun at Daryl Jennifer, and he was defending him. And the story that comes up the most is the guy was a skinhead who was being too rough with his girlfriend. HR told him to chill out, and then the guy got more aggressive, so HR took him down. I have no idea which story is the true one, but the fact is that the guy was knocked out and HR was arrested. The Bad Brains deal with Maverick Records was over. The Bad Brains again break up after this, and real touring nearly stops for the band. In 1998, the band changes their name briefly to The Soul Brains and records an album with Adam Yauch of the Beastie Boys. This album is still unreleased. The reason for this name change is questionable as well, but the most acceptable reason is just HR not wanting to use the word bad anymore. He was fully into Rasa and did not want the negativity that came with being bad anything. They continued to call themselves Soul Brains until 2001. From here, I couldn't find a whole lot that the band was up to for a while other than recording albums. In 2001, the band reunites as Bad Brains and records Live at Maritime Hall. In 2002, I and I Survived is released as their seventh full-length album. 
In 2007, they record their eighth full-length album, Build a Nation, which is produced by Adam Yauch. It debuts at the 100 spot of the Billboard 200. They have a 2007 European tour and played Riot Fest at Chicago when they return. The media platform YouTube helps a re-emergence of the band's popularity by making it easier to access their songs. Due to poor management, HR is not doing the greatest and drops out for the South American tour of 2008. Former singer Israel Joseph I fills in for this tour. The band had a 2010 Australian tour set up, but had to cancel due to health concerns. There's a short U.S. tour two years later in 2012 to promote their album Into the Future, originally to be called Let's Have Fun. In 2015, the band records their Woodstock Sessions EP. HR does not participate here either. He had been developing a habit of just standing on stage and not singing. Jesse Royal, a reggae musician, filled in for this. That same year, Dr. No, guitarist of the Bad Brains, is hospitalized and put on life support due to a heart attack and organ failure. His kidneys had stopped working, and they were giving him a 5% chance of survival. He stays on life support for around two weeks. After the two weeks, he was brought out of life support, but had to struggle to get back to normal. He was brought an acoustic guitar to play while in the hospital, but struggled so much that he threw it. To any musicians out there, I think we can all identify with his frustration. After three months in the hospital, Dr. No is moved to a rehabilitation center. A GoFundMe gets set up to help pay for the rehab. For a while after all of this, he still struggled playing guitar due to the loss of some feeling in his hand. Health issues strike the band again in 2016. HR gets diagnosed with SUNCT. This stands for short-lasting unilateral neuralgiform headache with conjunctival injections and tearing. Basically, these are extreme headaches that have the ability to cause someone such intense pain they are unable to deal with anything else. Think a migraine on steroids cranked up to the maximum level. A GoFundMe is set up for HR that helps raise $15,000. One year later, in 2017, HR has successful brain surgery to help with these headaches. Another health concern that is revealed is that HR has been suffering from schizophrenia. There's no telling when this first manifested itself in HR, but it certainly explains a lot of his erratic behavior we've been talking about throughout this episode. In 2017, the same year as HR's brain surgery, the Bad Brains played a show at Riot Fest in Chicago. This would be their 40-year reunion show. HR sings 10 songs, and the other three are sung by Randy Blythe. Blythe, as you may know, is the lead singer of the band Lamb of God. Now, Occasionally, I like to think about the little moments that push history one direction or the other. For example, would we even have the Bad Brains to talk about if it hadn't been for Sid McRae sharing his punk albums with them back in the late 70s? What if he hadn't stepped down as singer for HR to step up? It's these thoughts that make this last bit such a drag. As if 2020 hadn't been a massive turd already, Sid McRae passed away September 9th, 2020 from heart failure. All right, that's episode one. I'd like to give a huge thank you to all you punk rockers out there who are listening to my show. Thanks to those who gave me ideas for bands to cover in upcoming episodes, and special thanks to Granddaddy Longgreg for creating the show art here. If you like the logo or just want to support the show, you can get it printed on just about anything from our account at tpublic.com. Once again, thank you. This is a one-man production, 
All the research, scripting, recording, and editing is done by me. So if you would, feel free to leave me a five-star review on iTunes or wherever you're listening to this. I've been told that helps, and it would be a great place to let me know some other great punk bands you think I should cover here. If there's anything that you know I got wrong, please email me at letstalkpunkrock at gmail.com. I would also really like to hear your own punk rock stories. Ever play a show that got too wild? Ever meet any of these punk rock legends? Something crazy happened at a punk show you were attending? Go ahead and email me your story at letstalkpunkrock at gmail.com. I may even end up reading it out on here. My idea is to get a phone line set up for this podcast that you can call in and share your stories, but for now, the email will have to do. If email isn't your thing, I also have a Twitter. You can find me at Let's Talk Punk. That's Let's underscore talk underscore punk. I also have an Instagram that I'm still figuring out at Let's Talk Punk Rock, and there's a Facebook page that is currently being fixed up. The idea for these pages is to give you fellow punk rockers out there a way to contact me to share your stories and suggestions, but also for you to find other punk rockers out there. I can remember there used to be a website where you could pin your location and leave a comment about the local scene where you lived, and I loved that. That site is now gone, so hopefully this will be a good way for everyone to connect and find some new music. Alright, and finally, a few hints for our next show. They started in 1967. They're in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and they're one of the greatest proto-punk bands of all time. Think you know who I'm hinting at here? Let me know on social media. Otherwise, you'll just have to wait for the next show to come out. Okay, that's it. I'll catch you on the flip side.